Good morning. One last announcement uh, <clears throat> to those that are already committed to going to Israel in March. Uh, just want to remind you about your responsibility to uh, contact uh, Inspire Travel, send, send your form in. Uh, if you can, send it with uh, one of your first deposits if, if, you, if you haven't already. Uh, the process has begun for us, so we, we're excited about it, and, and we just need you to uh, not to get too far behind in, in, in some of these things. So if you can, please, uh, please do that uh, as, soon as, you, uh, as soon as it's possible for you. All right. Well, <clears throat> today I would like to draw your attention to Genesis chapter 30, verse 25. And as you're turning there, today is also the day that we come to the table of communion. And that's a very special time for us as well. Uh, so I had to be very careful in what I was going to do as far as preparing this message, because usually it's my desire, uh, if we can, to go as far as we can as, and do as many chap uh, verses as we can. And, uh, uh, but realizing the need for us to come to the table of communion, uh, the Lord put on my, on my heart to focus our attention on, on one issue that actually stems from the study we had last week. And if you remember, we were looking at the first 24 verses of, of chapter 30, and <clears throat> there we, we saw this, this focus upon covetousness. Rachel wanting what Leah had, Leah wanting what Rachel had, Laban wanting what everybody else had. And, uh, and we saw the, the dangers of covetousness in families and in individuals. And we, we saw a verse of scripture from the Apostle Paul who said that covetousness very simply is idolatry. And we can deal with the issue of covetousness, but we need to also deal with the issue of idolatry because uh, we're not far removed from the problem of idolatry in our daily life. <clears throat> and coming to the table of communion today, we, we need to examine our hearts about everything that affects our lives and especially what we allow to affect our lives that comes from the world. And we need to remember that the enemy is going to use everything he can to derail us in our walk with Jesus Christ. To take us off the path that he has placed us on to walk in a manner that is worthy of his calling. But to fully understand this, we need to find out what we're longing for in our own hearts. So as we look at verse 25, 
By the way, we're going to read verses 25 through 27, and eventually we'll probably look a little bit at verse 25 today. But it says, And it came to pass when Rachel had borne Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served, and, and let me go, for you know my service which I have done for you. In other words, you know that I've, I've stayed faithfully through these 14 years and given of myself to serving you and your family, providing for your dowry, Laban. But it's time for me to go. And Laban says this, Laban said to Jacob, Please stay if I have found favor in your eyes, for I have learned by experience. Now, that word experience is a word you want to underline in your Bible this morning. In verse 27. For I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Jacob said, send me away. I want to go home. For those of you who are are, are aware of the greatest generation of songwriting ever, which is the 60s and the 70s, maybe a little bit of the 80s, but not too much, and a little bit of the 90s, but not too much, but those 60s and 70s, those were the songs that were really written well. You might, wonder, you might wonder why it is that so many of these great songwriters wrote songs about wanting to go home. Simon and Garfunkel, Homeward Bound. Chicago, happy because I'm going home. I want to go home. And it just time and time again, all these people want to go home. Great songwriters, but they just want to go home. There's something about home, isn't there? Something about, you know, picking up and just taking off and saying, I want to, you know, find my roots someplace or plant my roots someplace else and we go, but yet we long for home. Now, folks, as believers in Jesus Christ, because this really pertains to us today, but as believers in Jesus Christ, what are we longing for? What are we longing for? What are we really longing for? What is your utmost desire as we together wait for the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Now, in most cases, the answer given by most followers of Christ is heaven. I want to go to heaven. I want to get to heaven. And if the scriptures are true, then Jesus Christ has secured my way to heaven, but I just want to go there. Jesus said, you know, uh, gather your, your, your treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy. Heaven. Now, we do come to realize from the scriptures that this earth, this world is not our home. Once you truly come to Christ, you realize this earth is not our home. The Bible says we are pilgrims and sojourners just passing through this world, but we're not of this earth any longer, really. 
This world system is not our governmental system any longer, even though, let me say, that we still have laws that we need to follow, we need to keep them, and as long as those laws are kept, you know, that's fine, until the government itself tells us something about the laws that should protect us about following God's law, but once it it forces us to not follow God's law, guess what we should do? Follow God's law, the higher law, God's law. You, You understand that? Okay, wake up. It's 11.35 this morning. So I want you to be awake here. You've got to be with me. This world system is not our governmental system any longer. And we are not where we will fully know and completely know the true satisfaction of God's mercy, God's grace, and God's peace. We are not where we will know fully these things. And we relish the the statements of Jesus and the apostles about heaven, don't we? John 14, verses 1 through 4. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And notice this, that where I am, there you will be also. Exciting. Where I am, there you may be also. But then he says this, and where I go, you know. And the way, you know. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, where's the Father? Where's the Father? But the key is what he says when he says in verse 3 that where I am, there you may be also. And then Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 and verse 21, he says, for our citizenship, notice what he says, our citizenship is in heaven from which we, are, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now that's a very important verse here. Our citizenship is in heaven, but we are waiting for whom? Jesus. And then he says, Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. We are waiting for Jesus. But our citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, in the, in, in the hall of faith, we're, we're told, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He lived in, in Ur of the Chaldees. He lived in the area of Haran, you know, where, where Jacob is now in our, in our study. And, 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 and there he, he is told by God, I want you to get up and I want you to go to a place where I want you to be now. That's going to be your new home. And he left not knowing where he was going because he trusted God. See, we are on this journey now to heaven. We've never been there. We've never seen it. We're trusting God, aren't we? Just like Abraham. And then in verse 9 it says, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. Even in the land of promise he dwelt as if it was a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. 
as we've been learning over the past few months in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he says, For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. What city is that? It's not here, is it? It's heaven. But if you jump down to verse 16, now speaking actually generally of of all those that are in the hall of faith, he says, but now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. And the word country really isn't there, but it's there to give us this idea of, of where it is. It says, a better place that's heaven or heavenly. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, while we know that heaven is the dwelling place of God, we also know that God is everywhere. We know that. God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. We know that from Psalm 139, where the psalmist tells us, Where can I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? I can't. That's the answer. I can't flee. And still, 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 God dwells in heaven in all of His glory. And so the very longing, listen, the very longing that we have for heaven really translates to our longing to be with God. Doesn't it? It's not so much about a place, it's about a person. It's about Him. And I can tell you this, I said this last night, I said in the last service, I don't care what heaven looks like, I really don't. I mean, it's a beautiful place because we're told that in the book of Revelation. But I've never been there. You haven't been there. We haven't really seen it. We can't see it with these eyes anyway. We can't see it with these eyes of flesh. But we have faith because God has told us how beautiful it's going to be. And it's going to be a million times more beautiful than what we can understand by reading the printed word. But I don't care what heaven looks like. I care that Jesus is there. And I care that He'll be there for us and that we'll be there with Him. That's what we need to be looking for and that's what we need to be longing for. Jesus. That's what we need to be. That's what should be on our heart. That's the longing, you see. And so, the question is for us today. Have we been transformed by the Spirit of God? Have we been regenerated? Are we born again now into a new and everlasting life to the extent that we are now longing to be in the presence of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ? Because our longing for heaven is really our longing for God Himself, isn't it? That's what our longing should be. I think of these words of Job in Job 19, verse 25 and verses 25 through 27 where he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. Listen, this is not a person who's thinking about whether there's a God or not. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. That is what we should be able to say as believers in Jesus Christ. I know that my Redeemer lives and He shall stand at last on the earth. He had a knowledge even in the times of the patriarchs. He had a knowledge because of His, uh, because of his communion with God. He had a knowledge that God was going to come to this earth. He had a knowledge that God was going to fulfill the promises given to us from the Lord Himself in the, in the garden when He said that there would be a seed of the woman who would come. He knew these things. And He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, which means it's just after death. After death, He says, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. 
Here's a, here's a person who knows from his experiential knowledge of what God has given to him in his communion with God, that there would be a resurrection and whatever he now would be resurrected into, a, into the body that God would give him, that he will be able to see God. Because he wouldn't see him with these eyes, these eyes of flesh, of our flesh. Probably a different way, but, but nonetheless, what he's saying is, in my flesh I'll still see God. I will see him. In the very person that I am, that God made me, I will see God. But now listen to this. He says, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. I'm not going to see anyone else. It is going to be God, and my heart yearns within me. Is that your prayer today? To yearn for God. Lord, I just want to long for Him. I want to long to see Him. Yes, I I thank you for the life that I now live here uh, in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, I just love the very fact that you've given me life to share the love of Christ with others, to to let them know about Jesus, to bring them to that knowledge, and and, and to help others to do the things that God has called me to do in whatever capacity that he wants and the gifts that he's given me. But all of this still in me, I just yearn to be with you. I yearn for heaven because I know that there you will be. Is that your prayer? Is that your desire? But now, let's get to reality here, because there are reasons why we struggle so much in this life, and in this world especially. The wickedness all around us. It's all around us, isn't it? Oh, we, we, you know, sometimes we just want to get out of El Paso, because we think that El Paso is the only place where there's wickedness. No matter where you go, man, there's wickedness everywhere. Eventually, it it catches up to you. Because we're in the world. What were you expecting? Heaven on earth? Isn't this the reality? The reason why we struggle so much? The wickedness that's all around us, the way that, listen, the way that the world has taken to hating all that is good, all that is pure, all that is holy, because it has pointed its hatred and its animosity and its, its hostility in the direction of all the things that pertain to the one true and living God, all the things that, you know, it, it, it's just pointed at the person work of Jesus Christ, it's pointed toward the cross of Jesus Christ, it's pointed toward the blood of Christ and toward the resurrection of Christ. All that the enemy has in its hatred toward God and Christ is pointed toward us. Not to mention that the world wants to cram down our throats all these things in this highly politically correct and highly tolerant society of ours. Yeah, they want tolerance, but guess what? They're not tolerant of Christianity. They're not tolerant of Christians. They're not tolerant of Christ. They're not tolerant of the cross. They're not tolerant of the Word of God. They're not tolerant of the things of God. That's the world we're living in right now. You agree? And it's interesting to me that Jacob was surrounded by the very same issues, albeit in a, in a lesser sense. Just in the fact that uh, now that we have 7 billion people on this earth, a highly sophisticated and technological society, and all of that technology really, in some cases, is good, but it's used for a lot of evil, too. 
So Jacob is surrounded by this world and the very same issues, the very same hatred toward the God of creation at the very same time that he is ready to return home, that he's ready to go home, desiring to go home, desiring, and this is true, desiring the fulfillment of all of God's promises to bring forth the seed of the woman, which is Messiah, because he knew that he was a part of that line. He desired that in his heart. This is part of his desire to go back home. Because Laban and his stint in Haran was the world. It was the world. And think about it. Jacob was surrounded by idolatry. He was surrounded by idolatrous practices. Folks, it doesn't matter that his relatives in Iran were familiar with the God of Abraham and Isaac and now the God of Jacob. It doesn't matter. God did send him there, Isaac as well, to get a wife. So that they would not get wives of the truly idolatrous, I mean the fully idolatrous people of Canaan, the Canaanite women. But nonetheless, what we discover, and what we'll discover as we go along here in our studies, is that his own uncle, and now father-in-law, Laban, was, was actually practicing some form of divination. You remember what I said to you about the word experience in verse 27. I said, underline that word, why? Because you see in verse 27, it says, Laban said to him, Please stay, if you have found favor in your eyes, for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Now, that does not mean... That Laban said, now I've learned by experience, by just the very fact that you've been with me, by the very fact that I've seen God uh, help you out, that it's, it's become a blessing for me. No, that's not what it means. The word, if we were to go back there, but you're, you know, you have your Bibles open to verse 27 of chapter 30. The word experience is the word nahash. And that word is translated in scripture as a magic spell. It is translated as divination or enchantment. So what he's saying very openly to Jacob is, he's saying, oh, oh, please stay if I have found favor in your eyes, for I have learned through my enchantments, I've learned by my whisperings in these uh, magical spells that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Does that sound familiar to anyone? I, I hope it sounds somewhat familiar to you that today there are churches that have put aside the Word of God and they, and they, you know, when you put aside the Word of God, the Spirit doesn't hang around. You put the Word of God aside, you, you know, the Spirit is not, the Spirit of God is not leading you. Now you're going by other spirits. Today in the church there's a problem with things called visualization. Contemplative prayer, which are actually uh, uh, types of uh, Buddhist-type prayers. Uh, yoga can be included in all of that. There are some churches that allow yoga uh, classes to happen when they should be studying the Word of God. Uh, 
any number of new age techniques. I said, well, you know, God is so open to all of these things. He is? I read the Word and it's not, He's not open to any of it. He calls them an abomination. Well, what we find out about Laban is, and as open as he is, people are being open to us that way as well. Oh, you guys are just study the Bible too much. You're not going to be open to all these other things. No. I don't want to be open to anything. I want to be open to only what God gives me. And that's God's Word. And it's true. And I believe it. And I'm going to stand upon it. Because none of the things of this world delight me. But I'm delighted in the love of God. I'm delighted in the truth of God. And I'm delighted in the purity of God. Because it's changing my life. And I hope it's changing yours. That we're realizing what God is doing in your life. It's not through enchantments and, and, and multiple just wordings that we'll talk about in a moment. But it's got into the church and it's weakened the church. In the next chapter, we'll see that Laban had household idols. They were called teraphim that were associated with superstition and magic. And even Rachel, oh, Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, was involved with idolatry and that she, she stole Laban's household gods when they fled. You'll see that coming up, chapter 31. And we'll discover as we go along in our study of Genesis that Jacob's household actually was involved with idolatry, for we will later see, and I want you to turn there, if you will, to Genesis 35. This, by the way, is a very important chapter because it is in chapter 35 that God changes Jacob's name to Israel. So there's some preparation here at the beginning of this chapter about that. So what we find out is that God said to Jacob, which tells us something. It tells us that God and Jacob are in communion and God's speaking to him. That's a very important point. Is God speaking to you and are you speaking to God? Are you having a conversation with the Lord in prayer? Are you spending time in prayer? God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Where's Bethel? Bethel, house of God, is exactly that place where he first met the Lord. Where in the dream he saw the stairway, where he saw God at the top and the angels ascending and descending. And that is where he had that first encounter with God and God spoke to him. He says, go to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. But notice what Jacob has to do in preparation for that. It says, Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel. We're not taking any of those idols with us. I want God to turn us into little piles of ashes just because you've got to hold on to your idols. He says, I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. Which tells us a lot about Jacob. You know, we can criticize him a lot, but you know what? He, he knew God was with him. He knew the Lord was with him. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands, their idols, the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. I guess maybe most of us are saying, well, maybe he should have destroyed them. But we'll get to that in chapter 35. 
But the foreign gods were probably in the form of figurines, just little carved out idols. And the earrings were personal talismans or charms. The earrings were charms, personal charms representing their idols. So uh, that's why he took those also. And some of you are saying, well, I got a charm bracelet. Uh, do you worship it? Is it just there to remind you of, you know, the kids play soccer or something like that? I don't think you're worshiping it. If you are, you better get rid of it. But you, if you're not worshiping, I wouldn't worry about it. Or your earrings, you know. Some of you all have uh, ladies. <clears throat> Some of you have um, yeah, crosses, you know. It's a, you're not worship the cross. You, it's a reminder. But, so you don't use them as charms to worship, right? Nobody wants to answer, but it's okay. I'm not going to bite your head off. But it's just interesting that that's what happens. See? Idols were a terrible thing in that day, and they should be still today. So Jacob was a believer surrounded by idolatry and by idolatrous practices, and although surrounded, he did not succumb to them. He continued to serve the living and the true God. See? Jump ahead. Just jump ahead many centuries. Let's jump ahead to the first century church. Let's jump ahead to that first century church because those first century Christians were surrounded by idolatry and idolatrous practices. Years, years later, nothing's changed. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul described the city of Athens as a a city given over to idols. And I I want you to turn to Acts chapter 17 because there in verses 16 and 17, there are some things that you need to see very clearly about what's happening in your life today, in our lives today as believers in this idolatrous world. But when Paul arrived in Athens, it says, now while Paul waited for them in Athens, he was waiting for others to come with him, who are going to work with him. His spirit, it says, I want you to notice this. If you underline anything, underline this. His spirit was provoked within him. His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Now, do you think that Paul realized and knew that those people that were in Athens were for the most part unbelievers, right? They were heathens. They were pagan worshipers. Or they were pagan idol worshipers. You all understand that. Still, what Paul felt in his heart or sensed or the weight of was this provocation, this provoking because of the idols. When it comes right down to it, idol worship is demon worship. Because the influence is to draw you away from the one true God. A whole city captivated by every type and form of, of, of idol carved out in stone. Sexual idols and, and uh, prosperity idols and, and just on and on and on. Every kind of idol. And, and, and they had uh, offerings at the base of these idols. Everywhere. He saw it. He was provoked by it. You know what the problem is today? Is that the church, for the most part, people in the church aren't provoked by the idols that are all around us. And they're all over us. They're all around us. We need to open our hearts and open our eyes and our minds to the very realization that there is a lot of idol worship around us. And that's what's keeping a lot of people from seeing Jesus. And yet we're still called to go tell them about Jesus. 
That's why we need to be in the Spirit and we need to be in the Word. We need to be in the Spirit and we need to be in the Word. We need to be in the Spirit and we need to be in the Word. And then we need to be out in the world and we need to let people know about Jesus. It's not just our job in the ministry, missionaries, it's not just our job, it's all of us. But we should feel that provocation, that provoking upon our hearts. Or else we just like, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm already in. That's a bad attitude, folks. Bad attitude to have. Because there's a lot of people dying and going to hell today. And therefore, this is what he said. Therefore, you know what that therefore is there for? It's to remind us of what was just said. Because of that provoking in his, within him, he reasoned in the synagogue. He went straight to the synagogue in Athens where there were believers in the one true God. And there were Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. And he went in there and he told them. And I would have to believe that he went in and, tell, and told them, Listen, you guys are living amongst a world of idols. But they're there because, not only because these people are worshiping them, but they're there to draw you away from the one true God that you're worshiping today. And he went in and he warned the church, as it were, the synagogue people. But he went in to warn them. That's what it says. Therefore he reasoned because of this provoking. We need to be provoked when we see all this garbage today on TV. It comes right into our homes. The internet comes right into our homes, even on your smartphones. That's why the smartphone is smarter than some of us sometimes. Hey, look at this. The things that people read today or the things that people watch today. They worship on Sunday, but on Monday, man, they're getting off on zombies and Vampires and multiple sexual partners because of the books that are on the top of the New York Times bestseller list? How do we justify worshiping God on one side of our mouth and then what are we saying on the other side? Is this not a problem? Paul says you better be warned. You better be warned now when you walk out that door that that spirit of idol worship not draw you. Not only did he warn the believer in the one true God, but it says that he went into the marketplace, the Agora, daily with those who happened to be there. He not only warned, but he went to witness. He warned, and then he witnessed to the unbeliever the truth. And that's what chapter 17 is about, for the most part. 
Apostle John would also warn of the flock. These things, the last two verses of 1 John chapter 5, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. Do you notice that it doesn't say that we may know about Him? That we may know Him, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you have that? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Because if you do, you're going to be longing for Him. You're going to be longing for home. And we are in Him, it says, who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. But the last thing He says to them is, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Keep yourselves from idols. They're Christians. And as we'll find out in just a little while, they're strong Christians. Yet He has to still warn them and tell them, little children, stay away from idols. Keep yourselves from them. Why? Because they're so deceptive. Jump ahead a few more centuries to our own time. Our idolatry. Our idolatry and idolatrous practice is still a problem, even in our modern, sophisticated world. Yes or no? Yes. Probably more so than ever. Whether in far-off countries like in India and African nations, countries in Asia, and even in Central and South America, where the basest forms of idolatry thrive, or in our own nation where household idols figure prominently in many religious festivals. Our Western culture is beset by a rising interest and fascination with occult practices historically associated with idolatry. Still going on today. Still all around us. As I mentioned earlier, consider that uh, visualization techniques are, are routine therapies today. Used by psychologists and psychiatrists. I, I just call them psychos for short. You know, they try to give you all of these kind of, you know, therapies and methods. I tell you what, we need to know that God has given us everything we need right here. But you've got to get into it. And you've got to read it. And you've got to study it. And you've got to pray. And you've got to trust. You've got to trust the Lord. That the Lord wants to bless you. That the Lord has already blessed you. He's blessed you enough in everything that Christ has already done for you. Channeling has, has gained acceptance as many prominent professionals and celebrities speak of contacting spirit guides. You ever heard that? They're even talking about that in emerging churches today. Those would be the churches that criticize us for studying the Bible. They want to hear from spirit guides. Dave Hunt, who recently went home to be with the Lord, he wrote a uh, in his excellent book, America, the Sorcerer's New Apprentice. It's not a brand new book, but uh, it's a good book. But anyway, this is what he wrote. He said, even as scientific and technical advances or advancement is accelerating at an exponential rate, we are witnessing the greatest explosion of occultism of all time. Tens of millions of Americans eager to develop their full potential are being offered magical solutions <coughs> to life's problems. This new belief system has gained such a wide acceptance and respectability in mainstream America that it has been given a new name. The New Age Movement. You know it's been written a few years ago. But that's what it's called, the New Age Movement. you know what the New Age Movement is? It's just the movement of the old lie. 
This is not anything new at all. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where Satan in the form of the serpent has told Eve, did God really say what he said? Did God really say that you would die on the very moment that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did he really say that? Ah, listen. He just doesn't want you to know what he knows about good and evil. But if you eat of the fruit, which is so beautiful and pretty and it probably tastes really wonderful, you can be like him. That's the old lie. The New Age movement today that incorporates Buddhist techniques and, and Hinduism and all kinds of other shamanisms and, and whatnot, every ism that you can imagine, has crept in the church already. And all of these things people today is just, you know, in, in the pop culture just say, well, that's all cool, you know. But it's not. It's the old lie. Besides all these forms of idolatry and idolatrous practices, the Scriptures warn believers that anything which comes between you and the Lord is an idol. Anything that comes between you and the Lord is an idol. Anything, anything that comes between you and the Lord is an idol. In addition to material objects such as a house or land or vehicles or, you know, idols can be people. We can make people idols. We used to call them matinee idols, you know, the old movie thing. Popular heroes, even our own children, we sometimes raise up. And, and to, the, to us, you know, man, we, we treat them like they're little gods. Careful with that, please. We lift up those whom we love, but the problem really comes down to one of the worst idols ever, self. Self. A lot of people today who see themselves as their own God. And didn't Paul already tell us that in the last days perilous times would come, men would be lovers of themselves? We're in that generation today, seeing it all around us. Boastful, proud, arrogant, blasphemers. They're all over. It used to be you'd find them in some coffee house, you know, blurting out their communistic philosophies. Nowadays, it's everywhere. The field of entertainment, in the field of sports and athletics. There are people there touting all kinds of weird, weird issues and things. It used to be safe areas. There's no, there's no place safe anymore. The only real safe place is with, is with God's people and with the Lord himself. In God's word. In the spirit of God. That's the safe place. Idols can also be immaterial things like fame, fortune, hobbies, occupations, recreations. So like Jacob, you are surrounded by idolatry and idolatrous practices. And like Jacob, although surrounded by them, you need not to succumb to them, but you can continue to serve the living and true God. You can continue to serve the living and true God. 
you can continue to serve the living and the true God. All right. You can continue to serve the living and the true God. Okay. See, the thing about it is, it's all around us, but you can still continue to serve the living and true God. So let's get busy doing that. Amen? All right. So some idols are easily identified, others are not. Some idolatrous practices are easily identified and others are not. So rather than identify particular idols and practices, what you need to be able to recognize are the signs in your life that you are serving idols rather than the living God. I mean, this is time for examination, folks. It's time for all of us to check our hearts here before we come to the table of communion. It's time for us to check our hearts. We need to recognize the signs in our life that, that we are actually serving idols instead of the living and true God. Because once you realize that you are behaving like an idolater, then you will be ready to identify and deal with whatever your idol or idolatrous practice might be. So with Jacob, you see the signs that indicate you are serving the living God rather than idols. With Laban and Rachel, you see just the opposite. You see the signs that indicate you are serving idols rather than the living God. Now, Jacob, as I said before, is is an often criticized Bible character. And I can tell you this, since we started our study in Jacob, I'm, I'm not here to criticize him. Unfortunately, the more I look at Jacob, the more I see me. This is a mirror, you see. The Word of God is a mirror for us. So it isn't for us to to criticize. I mean, let's face it. From the moment that Jacob was coming out of his mother's womb, he was already showing himself to be a heel catcher. He was already showing himself to be a supplanter. And so they called him Jacob. Deceiver. Do you know that that's what you called your son when you called him Jacob? Don't worry about it. The Lord loves Jacob. And you're Jacob too. All right. So... We see what Jacob did. He, he actually became a deceiver. And it, and it cost him. Why? Because he had to reap what he sowed. So we learned that lesson. But we're learning it too. When we realize what we've done that hasn't been right before God. So while, while Jacob is an often criticized Bible character, and while he, he had many significant faults, just like we do, I'm amazed at his resolve to serve the Lord despite marrying into a family of idolaters. He continued to serve the Lord. As imperfect as he was, he served the Lord. He did not serve idols. His life shows at least four signs that he was serving God rather than idols. Now, we're going to start with this one. This one's the only one we're going to look at before we come to the table of communion today. But Jacob was dissatisfied with the world. And then we'll find out as we get on into chapter 30 that he was also disinterested in wealth. Now, I use the word disinterested, I believe, in the proper sense. Too many people use the word disinterested as if uninterested and uncaring. That's not the translation or the definition of disinterest. To be disinterested means to be unbiased and without self-interest. That's what disinterest means. Uh, those of you that are English teachers and English majors, I think I'm, I'm correct in that. So, not, un, not uninterested, 
disinterested. Sometimes it's used to say that you're neutral about things or just kind of, uh, you know, in that particular sense. But no, in this case, he's unbiased about wealth. He doesn't have a self-interest about wealth. So he's dissatisfied with the world, disinterested in wealth, and then he's devoted to work. And we can argue whether he used the right work practices later on, but we'll talk about that then. And then he was also disciplined in his witness. So these are four things that, we, that, that are signs that he was serving the Lord rather than idols. But our, our, for today, and, and coming to the, to the, to the uh, table of communion, Jacob was dissatisfied with the world. And wouldn't you think of it, we're finally at verse 25. And it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, send me away. Send me away that I may go to my own place, to my own country. I mean, after serving Laban for 14 years for his two daughters, Jacob longed to begin journeying homeward. It seems that for some time he had been gripped with a growing dissatisfaction for his surroundings. I guess I would too if the first thing that your father-in-law tells you is, yeah, we're going to have a wonderful wedding feast for you and Rachel. And the next thing you know, you just married Leah. Wouldn't you be dissatisfied? You wouldn't be? You would be. Okay. You've just been deceived and you would do Oh, it's okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, we're trying to get through here. No, we'd be dissatisfied. And it was the birth of Joseph that just simply brought it out, brought it out in the open. Rachel finally has a daughter, a son, I mean. She, she finally gives birth. She, her, her, her womb is opened by the Lord. Finally says, hey, this is it, man. Fourteen years. I've served every day. Of 14 years. I mean, it almost sounds like a prison sentence, doesn't it? But that's the way it is when we are serving the world and not the Lord, folks. And it's time that we stop serving the the world and start serving the Lord. Because if you serve the Lord, that's not a prison sentence. That's joy. No matter what you face, it's joy. And if you have a growing dissatisfaction with the world, that's a good sign. If you have a growing dissatisfaction with the world, it is a good sign that you are serving the living God rather than than serving idols. If you are homeward bound for heaven in the presence of the Lord, it is difficult to become too enamored of this world's immaterial or material idols or idol practices. Going back to 1 John... I want you to consider the exhortation of John to the church. He said in 1 John 2.15, he says, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. Now, folks, that's, that's pretty clear. I, I don't think that there has to be a lot of explanation. That's pretty clear. John said, Do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world. In other words, if you love the world more than you love anything else, which includes Jesus, and that's the point, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Have you checked your hearts today? Are you loving some of the things in this world? It may be time for you to actually say, Lord, I've been deceived, and it's time for me to get right with you. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he says, for all that is in the world, look at this list. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You know what those three things are? That's the old lie that we just talked about in Genesis 3.15. 
That's the old lie, the lust of the flesh. Hey! Don't you want to know about good and evil? The lust of the flesh. Hey! Don't you want to taste that beautiful fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The lust of the eyes. Hey, don't you want to be like God? The pride of life. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Is any clearer than that? Choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods on the other side, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Is there any, anything, any middle ground here? No. And the world is passing away and the, and the lust of it, but he who, de, he who does the will of God abides forever. What's the will of God? That we would trust the Lord Jesus Christ. We would place our full faith and trust in Him. We live for Him. It needs to be said, by the way, that John was not dissatisfied with the spiritual state of his original readers uh, to his letter, much less did he question or doubt their salvation. That's not what all of this is about. On the contrary, John's readers might even be viewed as having matured in the faith. Just read the portion before verse 15. John was writing to them these things because their present state was so good. He wanted to warn them about dangers which always exist no matter how far one has advanced in their Christian walk. I don't care how long you've been a believer in Jesus Christ. You are subject to the same temptations of the world. You are subject to the same temptations of this world. So we always need to be reminded that the world, which is called the cosmos, is an entity entirely hostile to God and is always a seductive influence which believers in Christ should continually resist. Hey folks, the devil is after you. And he's after you to lose your witness, to lose your blessing that God has given to you. It's yours. But what are you doing with it? You playing around with it as if it's just a toy? Or are you going to guard it and protect it because it's God's love for you? What are you going to do? Listen to what Jesus said in John 15 verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. This is not an easy thing, is it? I want you to enjoy this today. I want you to be blessed by this communion today. I want you to wake up. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. But notice this. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, Christian, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Can you deal with it? We can. Because Jesus said, I'll be with you. I'll not leave you. I'll never forsake you.
I'll be with you always. I'll be your strength. I'll be your wisdom. I'll be your grace. I'll be your righteousness. I'll be everything you need me to be. Just trust me. And serve me. And live for me. And give up the world. As we come to the table of communion today, let's examine ourselves in light of God's Word. Do we desire home? And in so doing, do we desire Him? Is it time to no longer love the things of this world and begin the journey of loving Christ our Savior, which, is, which not only takes us home, but in fact, He is our home. Are you longing for Him? Do you with Job yearn for Him? Yearn to see Him? Take hold of this bread today and this cup and think about that question. Take the bread, take the cup because it's for sinners. It's for us to know what Christ did for us. And I want to leave you with this psalm. David said in Psalm 16 verse 11, You will show me the path of life. Has He not shown you the path of life? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the way, the path. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. What other joy do you want than His? I want you to be in His presence and know that that's what you are longing for. And lastly, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Is there anything in this world that can outweigh the pleasures of standing at the right hand of God where His pleasures are forever? Is there anything greater? Think about that as you hold the cup and as you hold the bread. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. And let's really ask ourselves, Where am I in relation to Jesus? And where is Jesus in relation to me? Is He outside or is He inside? I want Him to be inside of you. I want you to receive Him into your life. Let's pray. Father, we look to You as the only life 